You're listening to the New Century Multiverse. Uncivil Outlaw. Chapter 13. The Disreputable Place. The next day, after a surprisingly peaceful rest and another journey by flying horse, we found ourselves on a wide street crammed full of people milling about engaged in the reconstruction of a town. Everywhere we looked there were stalls and tents, giving way to crude shelters and pine-boarded edifices. Here and there and further back I saw burned-out husks of former buildings and smelled the charcoal in the air. And whichever way the eye looked was mud, thick, brownish, clingy, sticky mud, the kind that you sank into past your ankles and without careful manoeuvring on the upstep might be inclined to claim your footwear for itself. Wooden boards had been vainly laid down to provide some measure of passageway to and fro along the street, but these fragile bridges were themselves sinking under the surface to become the fossilised bedrock of this lake of filth. And as anywhere with horses could attest, not to mention the scattering of stray and possibly rabid dogs, added to that mud would be a constant lumpy stream of animal effluent, a veritable potpourri of poo, and judging by some of the unsavoury types we beheld staggering through this habitat of nightmares, I would not have been the least surprised to witness them simply, as Abigail would put it, drop trow and deposit a curling turd the size of a birthday cake directly in our path. Well, the captain muttered, surveying the scene. This place looks homely. The nag flared his nostrils and snarled. I love the smell of putrefying debauchery in the afternoon. Abigail, I hissed through clenched teeth, my eye wide as I grasped at her sleeve. I think I'm going mad. You don't like dirt too much, do you? Dirt I can handle. Here we have stumbled into an overflowing cornucopia of cess. Relax, Doc. I spy a plan. And with that, she sidled into a general store on our right and haggled with the hairy fellow inside. The nag nodded overtly at the hitching post, and I absently slung his reins over it to convey the illusion of tethering. Abigail emerged proudly with two sets of tall, wide Wellingtons. Got you some gumboots. Feller in there was a sweetheart, name of Charlie, and luckily he accepted gold. He sure knew how to place his business, all close to the front of town, like. I took them gratefully, and we sat on the nearby bench, transferring them to our feet, switching our own boots into rough, hessian drawstring sacks. This new, waterproofed leather footwear travelled halfway up my leg, leaving me at least able to walk these streets without cursing loudly, though the rank smell of the place would surely haunt my nostrils for days after we escaped. I asked Charlie where we could get a drink, some entertainment, and a little information on the town, and he told me the Gem Theatre, up that way, but said I should watch out for the proprietor, Al Swearingen. Said the man never met a problem he couldn't stab. We picked our way carefully across what boards were still struggling for air, and led our horse up the Brown River to the Gem. It was one of the older buildings on this land, and as we stepped through the saloon doors I detected the vinegary degradation of years of urgent sex ground into its walls. It was a load-bearing funk, 
and I predicted a brisk spring clean would lead to the riotous collapse of the entire establishment. Atop the upper floors, a gaggle of working girls looked down at us, murmuring to one another, a collage of faded skirts, torn stockings, bruised cheekbones, and wary expressions. It was not at all how Raven had described the Diamond Bell bordello in Memphis. Glamour here went as far as a thin layer of obscuring rouge. I could feel myself clench up and caught Abigail's sharp eye as she observed the conditions. At the far end of the bar sat a man clad in a pinstriped suit and bearing a ferocious black moustache. He had one intense, dark, dangerous eye on the paperwork that a young woman was laying out for him, and the other on these newcomers. She clocked us as well and fell silent. Well, hello there, he called out without a trace of warmth. May I interest you in partaking from our suite of gentlemanly entertainment? His voice was rough and terse, with a curiously rich register. Your wife is welcome to wait in the parlor unless she wants to watch. This was not a simple thug. That much was immediately clear, and this invitation was a challenge to present ourselves. Ain's wife yet. Abigail called back, striding forward and pulling up a stool to perch at the opposite end of the bar, staring daggers directly at this man. Elsewhere, Engine? Who wants to fucking know? We're interested parties from the RSA, and they're definitely expecting us to return to them. I felt my stomach leap as this gambling chip was laid down. All sorts of government types would come a-calling if we were to disappear, but the way I see it, there's not an overabundance of interest to be had in Deadwood. And we can simply pass right through this place like a measure of whiskey, provided y'all are as hospitable as these here environs make you seem. The bartender shifted himself as he wiped down a glass, purposefully allowing my eye to catch on the ivory handle of a sheathed hunting knife. At a nod from Swearingen, he poured a measure of whiskey and slid that across to Abigail. There was a scraping sound as the man in charge pushed aside his stool and slowly walked around to occupy a space adjacent to us. I moved in and stood beside my companion. What's the matter? Don't the fancy man talk? Al went on glaring at me. Or is he by chance one of those duded-up Pinkerton agent cartographers on the government payroll? Their nose twice as fucking sticky as their fingers. Last one of those that came a call and ended up inspecting the inside of several pig intestines. I was pinned. As soon as I opened my mouth, they would see me for the soft, vulnerable imposter I was. I'd be found out, and only disaster would follow. I squared my shoulders, feeling the panels of stone spring plating within my red jacket, going to a rarely visited place in my head, calling upon every figure of authority I had encountered. I speak when I feel requisite need, I replied, my voice cold, decisive, discriminating. But I represent the business interests of Messrs. Winchester and Colt, who don't go about establishing mutually beneficial transactions with just anyone. I do believe we are in the presence of a man who has both a mind to the future and a strong investment in ensuring his own personal jurisdiction within these boundaries. An additional whiskey, if you please, good sir. This last part was said to the bartender without looking at him. My tone was steady and deep, and I kept my gaze on Swearingen, draining from the proffered glass without reaction. So if Mr. Doherty and I are to understand it... Swearingen indicated the man serving the drinks... 
You two have journeyed over here with your pair of investigatory eyes to either strike an entrepreneurial endeavor with yours truly, or to forget you ever saw this place and carry on down the road. Would I be correct in that assertion? Swearingen sipped from his own glass. That would be in the ballpark, yes. Abigail leaned forward. Which way would you have it, sir? Prosperity with fealty? Or to retain that fierce independence you won with the establishing of this settlement? Sounds like you know exactly which way I'd swing on that particular conjuncture, Red. You won't find many in this town that'll drop to their knees, smack their lips, and obligingly feast upon what any government has to offer. Last I heard, those blues had no place west of the Penn State line, and that was the end of it. But if we were to be looking into western expansion... I said. If that were indeed an inevitability, not a one of us in this room could divert. And I'm not saying it is, merely laying down a hypothetical. Presumably, you'd want to be on the end being gratified, not the other way around. You're very sharp, English. Yes, under those unavoidable circumstances, if there's an advantageous position to be had, I'd rather play the piper than the pipe. Unless I'm the one having his pipe played. Now, why don't you furnish me with a small mercy and tell me what the fuck you want to know before I'm entirely depleted of my notoriously circumstantial measure of patience? We've been led to understand that the remnants of the town of Clearwater settled in Deadwood some while ago. Before the pox. Before the fire. Yes, some of them settled here. Some even survived to this day. What of them? My friend here is a debt collector. Just when I was casting about for one more reason to hold you in lofty regard. And there's a long-standing warrant out upon a personage named Pearl Gray. Did she ever tarry here? Here? As in the building or the town? Specificity will help us so much in this accursed case. Here at the gem, then, said Abigail, a venom tracing into her voice as she once again regarded the room. And if the path of her life is fucking expired, what does that set your recourse upon? Would you be after her final employer for recompense? Abigail could not speak, so I did so for her. Pearl worked for you, and she's dead? What did she owe, and what does that even amount to in a post-dollar time? Did you... Abigail called over to the woman tending the accounts. Does he treat his women cruelly? I know she kept Al's books before me. The lady began. That doesn't answer my question. Does he treat you... Cruelly. It is about business and debt, or about whether her life was peaches and cream for the duration she dwelled within these walls. Does he? Abigail asked again, looking up now at the women on the balcony. Get your fucking back room and get ready for the evening! Swearingen roared again without looking upwards. Sir, ma'am, I believe I asked you if I could settle a debt for a former employee. Now either name your price or find yourself some space outside before I find it for you. You could get it from Hector. A voice from the doorway, intoned with a peevish lilt. I glanced that way and saw a peculiar, disheveled little man, his mottled jacket trimmed with lace cuffs. And you are, sir? Ebe Farnham. I'm the mayor of these parts. By all means, ask me what you like. Swearingen had raised his eyes to heaven by this stage. Ebe, these city types were just leaving. By all means, convey them to Gray's conveniences at your own. And the faster you do it, the lower your chances are of getting skull-fucked. Right you are, Al. Farnham stammered and waved us over. Abigail kept her eye on Swearingen, but stepped down and backed away to the door. I retrieved a gold coin from my pocket and laid it on the bar. For the conversation, the whiskey, and the information, I noted. 
Swearingen extended a hand. It was a pleasure, he said through clenched teeth. I nodded coldly, placed my own hands back in my pockets, turned and left. As we led the nag away from the gem, the pimp appeared on the balcony above the front door, watching us go as he swigged from a brown bottle. Soon we stood at the threshold of Grey's conveniences, and Abigail was breathing hard. Farnham was prattling on about the town history and his current place of authority in it. I caught my companion's green eye, awash with frustration, fear, anticipation, and interrupted grief. I hitched the nag once more and laid a hand on her good shoulder. She turned to me, tears forming in her eye as the weight of the recent revelation was finally allowed to hit home. My mom is dead. She sobbed and sank into my shoulder. I held her tightly as she shook. Well now, what's wrong with the little filly? Farnham asked. He was still there and had been busy talking the whole time. Is she tired and road-worn? Because I can arrange for a fine hotel for you two to rest up in at very reasonable rates. Are you well acquainted with Mr. Swearingen? I asked over Abigail's shaking shoulder. Oh, why, yes, he and I are bosom companions, Farnham said, licking his lips. There's naught that goes on around here that we don't share. In that case, we'll find our own accommodations. Thank you kindly and good day, sir. Er, are you sure? I can't... Perhaps arrange some libations and a generous portion of my victuals. I said good day, sir. At this, the strange, thin, oily little man huffed and went on his way, muttering to himself. Would you like me to go in first? I offered to Abigail, nodding at her father's premises. Prepare him. She shook her head and pushed her way through the door. In front of her, Hector Gray was just closing up shop for the night. He turned and first recognized his own Stetson hat, then the red hair beneath it, then the woman he had last seen as a thirteen-year-old girl. The crock-pot he was holding fell to the floor and burst into smithereens. You have been listening to episode 13 of Uncivil Outlaw, The Disreputable Place. Written, edited, and directed by Alexander Shaw. Captain Abigail Gray, performed by Sharon Shaw. Dr. James Penrose, Ellis Alfred Swearingen, and Ethan Bennett Farnham, performed by Alex Shaw. The Nag, performed by Spencer Lieb. And Mitzi, performed by Jennifer Lecluse. Porch Blues, Western Streets, Stoic Morning, and Smoking Gun, composed and performed by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. Silent Winter by Running Wolf. Make Your Decision by Dan Philipson of Shockwave Sound. Uncivil Outlaw Theme, True Greatness, performed by Bjorn Lynn of Shockwave Sound. Many Soundscapes by Tabletop Audio. I have donated to two charity funds connected with Black Lives Matter. 
there is Black Minds Matter, based in the UK, which is an organisation that connects black clients with black therapists, including providing financial support. These are two groups who respectively have a much tougher time being able to find mental health support and being able to attain the qualifications to practice due to the currently unfair system. And there is the Autistic Women and Non-Binary Network's Autistic People of Colour Fund. This US-based charity provides direct support, mutual aid and reparations. I have specifically focused on some of the most vulnerable and often most ignored members of society here. Sharon has also donated to the Black Journalists Therapy Relief Fund, which is financing mental health support for black journalists covering the BLM demonstrations. Throughout at least July and August 2020 and what remains of June, every single penny I make from sales of the New Century Multiverse audiobooks on Bandcamp will be donated by me to those above-mentioned charities. So if you've been holding back on buying these, any that you pick up this summer will have the proceeds going to some very good causes. And all the links to these can be found pinned to the top of both of my Twitter accounts. The New Century Multiverse is funded by Patreon. Our top-tier $15 sponsors get a shout-out every episode. So many thanks, too. Joel Robinson, Finbar Nicole, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Trey Contreras, Matthew Webb, Angus Lee, Kevin Vey, Daniel Salguero, Connor Kennedy, Johan Clayson, Joe Gesiga, Tim Rosensky, Christopher Wolfe, Matthew A. Siebert, Kat Esman, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Tom Painter, Dan Hepner, Marty Huey, Mark Luksch, Brian Novak, Frankie Punzi, Aaron Lecluse, Lorraine Chisholm, Timothy Green, Cassandra Newman, Duran Barnett, Benjamin, Joseph Gluck, Greg Downing, Kieran Dashler, Dan Mayer, Jameis Enright, Nick Ord, David Sheely, Chris Finnick, and Joe Crowe.